What can be written of the purity of the canal, or of the greenery and the plant that sprout below the spring? Bitter herbs, aromatic herbs, various dark green and pale green herbs all grow together. One bush that was seen was as multicolored as a peacock's tail and shimmering like wavy water with isolated flowers blooming here and there. In all of Kashmir, there is no scenic spot so beautiful or charming as this one. It is obvious that Kashmir, above the river, is beyond any comparison with what is below the river. I should really have stayed in this area for a few days and enjoyed myself fully, but since the hour for marching was near, and it had begun to snow in the passes and there was no time to stop, I turned my reins back toward the city. It was ordered that plane trees should be planted on both sides of the canal. Emperor Jahangir, Jahangir Nama. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season 9 of the Islamic History Podcast. This season, we are continuing our discussion on the Mughal Empire. This is episode 9-5, Shah Jahan's Rise. Just like the Ottoman Empire, fratricide in the Mughal Empire was a grim and recurring theme within the royal family. Fratricide means the killing of one's brothers or siblings. In the Mughal Empire, when an emperor died, a power struggle ensued amongst his sons, culminating in a battle for the throne. The victor usually ordered the execution of his remaining brothers in an attempt to eliminate future rivals. Such fratricides were driven by political necessity as they aimed to maintain stability and consolidate power. However, over many generations, such ruthless behavior contributed to the weakening of the Mughal Empire. Fratricide became a part of the Mughal tradition during the rise of Emperor Jahangir's son and successor, Shah Jahan. Jahangir's Death With General Mahabad Khan and Prince Khurram in the Deccan, Nur Jahan, the wife of Emperor Jahangir, was back to running the empire. Her brother, Asaf Khan, was made the vakil, or prime minister, which was the same position their father had once had. But Asaf Khan had much less authority as Nur Jahan was the real one in charge. Emperor Jahangir, meanwhile, was steadily growing sicker and he was not getting any better. The struggles of the past few years, him dealing with Prince Khurram's rebellion and then Mahabad Khan's rebellion, had taken a toll on his life and energy. Emperor Jahangir was also impaired by his heavy alcohol and opium consumption. On top of that, his asthma continued to worsen. To try to improve his health, the emperor decided to move to Kashmir. And in one of his poems, he had described Kashmir as heaven on earth. But despite his move to Kashmir, his condition continued to worsen, and Emperor Jahangir wound up dying right there in Kashmir on October 28, 1627. His body was moved to Lahore where he was buried, and his tomb is still there to this day. Jahangir's Legacy 
Jahangir had a love for art. During his reign, the famous Mughal miniature art was developed in India. Emperor Jahangir also collected art from around the world, and he especially adored English paintings. His autobiography, the Jahangir Nama, included illustrations of plants and animals that were very scientifically observant in many ways. Furthermore, the Mughal Empire was very successful during Jahangir's reign. Jahangir's empire was doing very well at the time of his death, and there had been very little internal strife with the exception of the rebellions from his two sons, Khusro and then later on, Khurram. And with the capitulation of the Deccan, all Mughal enemies had been beaten or subdued. The Mughal empire was very wealthy, very prosperous, and stable. There was general peace and rule of law, which kept the populace happy and satisfied. However, if we're honest, much of this stability was really due to the however, if we're honest, much of this stability was due to the policies and the rule of Akbar the Great. Shahabuddin Muhammad Shah Jahan. Jahangir left behind two sons when he died, both of whom claimed the throne. These were Prince Shahriyar and Prince Khurram. Their older brother, Prince Pervez, had died a year earlier. Prince Shahriyar was supported by his mother-in-law, Nur Jahan, who was also the emperor's wife. Prince Shahriyar also held a stronger position since he was in Lahore, where the treasury and the royal court were located. After his father's death, Prince Shahriyar seized the treasury and declared himself emperor. Meanwhile, Prince Khurram, way off in the Deccan, was supported by his father-in-law, Asaf Khan, and General Mahabad Khan. However, since he was so far away in the Deccan and outside Mughal territory, there was very little he could do to stop Prince Shahriyar. And that's where Asaf Khan came into play. With Shahriyar in Lahore, Asaf Khan placed Khurram's older brother Khusro's son, Dawar Baksh, on the throne in Agra. But this was only temporary. This was only to counter Prince Shahriyar's claim to the throne and give Prince Khurram time to move north. Asaf Khan also took charge of Khurram's sons, Dadashiko and Aurangzeb. And then he put his sister, Nur Jahan, in prison. The following year was very brutal as both sons fought for the throne. Asaf Khan, Prince Khurram's father-in-law, led an army to Lahore to face Shahriyar. There, he defeated Shahriyar's forces, captured Prince Shahriyar, had him blinded, and thrown in prison. With Lahore now under his command, Asaf Khan declared Prince Khurram, who was still in the Deccan, as the new emperor on December 30, 1627. Prince Khurram finally arrived in Agra on February 24, 1628, to take the throne. He then promptly ordered all rival claimants to the throne to be executed. This included the temporary emperor, Dawar Baksh, though there are some reports that he managed to escape to Persia. Another victim of Prince Khurram's fratricide was the now-blind Prince Shahriyar. He also executed the princes Tamuras and Hosheng, who were sons of Prince Khurram's deceased uncle, Daniel. This was the beginning of the vicious cycle of fratricide that would plague the Mughals for generations. Prince Khurram was officially coronated on February 6, 1628. 
he took the regal name Shah Jahan, which means King of the World. His full imperial name was Abul Mudhaffar Shahabuddin Muhammad Sahib Quranisani Shah Jahan Badshaghazi. Shah Jahan's wife, Ajiman Bano, took the regal name Mumtaz Mahal, which means chosen one of the palace. The emperor was also united with his two sons, Dadashiko and Aurangzeb. In the previous episode, we had mentioned how his two sons were held as hostages by Jahangir after Prince Khudam was pardoned for his rebellion. As per Islamic tradition, the khutbahs were read in Shah Jahan's name and coins were struck with his name. He then promoted Asif Khan to chief minister and Mahabad Khan became general of the imperial army. Now that he was emperor, Shah Jahan brought back some of the Islamic elements of the empire that had gone lax during Akbar's and Jahangir's reign. For instance, he abolished the practice of prostrating before the emperor. This had first been established by his grandfather, Akbar the Great. However, he replaced the practice of prostrating to the emperor with kissing the ground before the emperor, which, if we think about it, was still a form of prostration. However, religious scholars were exempt from this requirement. Shah Jahan also returned to the lunar calendar. We discussed in the first episode of this series how Akbar the Great has switched to the solar calendar to align tax collections with harvest time. A few years after this, Shah Jahan would also order the destruction of all new Hindu temples and a few Christian churches were destroyed as well. Now listen to this quote about some of the religious changes Shah Jahan introduced. It is important to keep in mind, however, that this is a biased account from a Western author who likely holds a secular or at least a non-religious worldview. It is reported that in the district of Benares alone, 76 Hindu temples were thus razed to the ground. Similarly, several Christian churches in Agra and other parts of the empire were demolished. In the same vein, Shah Jahan reintroduced the taxes on Hindu pilgrimages and ordered Hindus to keep a specific style of dress, with their tunics tied on the left, as opposed to the Muslims, who tied them on the right. While actively encouraging conversions to Islam, he strictly prohibited Muslims from changing their religion. Hindu men were forced to convert to Islam if they wanted to marry a Muslim woman. Adults' male enemies, such as the Rajput of Bundelkhand, the name given to the parts of Uttar Pradesh and Madhya Pradesh, and the Portuguese at Hooghly, about 40 kilometers north of Kolkata in West Bengal, were offered a choice between Islam and the sword. Dirk Collier, the Mughals, and their India. We'll talk more about that Portuguese incident later on in this episode. Rebellions Just like Jahangir, Akbar, and Humayun before him, Emperor Shah Jahan had to deal with the various rebellions that sprouted up soon after he became emperor. One of the first to revolt was a man named Johar Singh of Bundela. Johar Singh was the son of Birsingh Singh Dio, who had killed Akbar's advisor, Abul Fadl, back when Jahangir was still known as Prince Salim. To know more about this incident, go back to episode 9-1. Shah Jahan sent armies led by some of his best generals, including Islam Khan, Faroz, and Mahabad Khan. 
These three generals attacked from three different sides, forcing Johar Singh to surrender after a brief battle. Johar Singh then was ordered to pay heavy reparations. These included one and a half million rupees, a thousand gold coins, and 40 elephants. He also had to contribute 2,000 men to the Mughal army. However, Johar Singh himself was rewarded with titles and honors in order to maintain his loyalty. The next one to revolt was Salabat Khan, who rose up against Shah Jahan in 1629. Salabat Khan is better known as Khan Jahan Lodi. Khan Jahan Lodi had fought against Emperor Shah Jahan during the Wars of Succession. He was later pardoned, but ordered to remain in the royal court in Agra. Khan Jahan Lodi escaped the royal court, but was caught at Dolapur by imperial soldiers. This was about 300 miles east of Agra in the modern state of Uttar Pradesh. Khan Jahan Lodi escaped yet again, this time by crossing the Chambal River Valley. He fled south through Bundelkhand and Gondwana, finally reaching the Deccan where he was given refuge. However, this brought the imperial army down to the Deccan. Shah Jahan traveled down to Malwa in modern Madhya Pradesh in order to oversee the campaign in the Deccan. In 1630, imperial forces attacked the Sultanate of Ahmad Nagar for supporting the rebel Salabat Khan. This was actually a perfect opportunity for the Mughals to take Ahmad Nagar as the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate was under a lot of strain. The Ahmad Nagar Sultan, Murtaza Nizam had developed serious conflict with Fatih Khan, who was a son of the illustrious Malik Ambar. In addition to the problems with Fatih Khan, Shahaji, a former Maratha lieutenant of Malik Ambar, had left Ahmad Nagar after Malik Ambar's death in 1626. Shahaji was the son of Maloji, who was also one of Malik Ambar's lieutenants. Shahaji was also the father of Chhatrapati Shivaji, who was the founder of the Maratha Empire. After leaving the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, Shahaji went to serve the Bijapur Sultanate, but he returned to Ahmadnagar in 1628 and joined the army again. In 1630, however, factional politics in the Ahmadnagar court led to the murder of several of Shahaji's in-laws and patrons. Shahaji then decided to defect to the Mughals and brought along his 2,000-strong cavalry. The Mughals sent Shahaji to occupy Janar and Samgamner and later on gave him these districts as Jagirs. With all of this pressure, the Ahmadnagar Sultanate eventually negotiated a peace treaty with the Mughals. With this peace treaty, the rebel, Khan Jahan Lodi, was forced to go on the run again. He was eventually killed in 1632 at the Battle of Kalangar in modern Uttar Pradesh, barely 40 miles from Agra. Mumtaz Mahal Shah Jahan married Mumtaz Mahal in 1612 when she was 19 years old and he was 20 years old and still known as Prince Khotam. Mumtaz Mahal was the daughter of Asaf Khan and the niece of Nur Jahan. And just like her famous aunt, Nur Jahan, Mumtaz Mahal was very close to her husband, Shah Jahan. She remained faithfully by his side during his fugitive years when the imperial army was chasing him all over India. And together, they had 14 children. Their first son, Darashiko, was born in 1615. Their third son, and future emperor Aurangzeb, was born on October 23, 1618. 
Mumtaz Mahal accompanied Shah Jahan to the Deccan in 1631 when he was dealing with Salabat Khan or Shah Jahan Lodi's rebellion. While she was there, she died during the birth of their 14th child. Shah Jahan loved his wife and was deeply hurt by her passing. To memorialize her, he decided to build a grand mausoleum for his queen. The result was the Taj Mahal, which means crown palace. The Taj Mahal is still a major tourist attraction all these years later, and it is a symbol of the great love between Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal. The Taj Mahal Known as the Taj today, the Taj Mahal is considered the greatest achievement of Mughal architecture. Work on the mausoleum began in 1632, and the building was complete enough in 1643 to hold a memorial service for Mumtaz Mahal. By 1648, most of the work on the main building was complete, but there was still some work to be done on the other buildings in the complex. Some of these buildings were not completed until 1653. The Taj Mahal was built on the shores of the Jumna, or Yamuna River in Agra. It was right across from the royal household where Shah Jahan could see it from his bedroom. The Taj Mahal holds a perfect north-south orientation, meaning it always has abundant sunlight. It also means that walking to it, any visitors would not have to shade their eyes from the sun. Mumtaz Mahal is buried exactly in the middle of the Taj Mahal with her head pointed north and her face pointed west towards Mecca. Shah Jahan, the emperor, was deeply involved in the planning process of the Taj Mahal. He had a natural appreciation for beauty and was well acquainted with things that were pleasing to the eye. The Taj Mahal is situated on a raised plinth, or base, about 23 feet high. It is constructed from white marble, which reflects different shades under sunlight and moonlight. There are also four minarets, one at each corner of the square base. All four sides of the mausoleum itself are identical. Each facade of the mausoleum is adorned with central arches reaching 108 feet in height. The grand central dome is 240 feet high and crowned with a finial. The central dome is also surrounded by four smaller domes. Inside of the Taj Mahal is an octagonal chamber with intricate carvings and semi-precious stones. This chamber houses the cenotaphs of Montaz Mahal and Shah Jahan. A cenotaph is a false sarcophagus representing someone who is buried somewhere else. The actual sarcophagi for Mumtaz Mahal and Shah Jahan are located on the lower level of the Taj Mahal. The Architect King Shah Jahan spent hefty amounts of money on various building projects, and for this reason, he is considered a builder king. He built spectacular new buildings, but he also spent large amounts of money to have existing buildings repaired and improved. These improvements initiated by Shah Jahan were obviously very effective, as many of these buildings still exist today. It should be known, however, that most of these buildings were designed for the royal family and for the nobility to enjoy. Besides the Taj Mahal, Shah Jahan built many buildings during his reign. Of course, he built himself several marble palaces in the major cities of the empire, including Agra, Delhi, and Lahore. 
And when he relocated his capital to Delhi in 1648, he built a new city called Shah Jahanbad, which today is known as Old Delhi. Between this new city, that is Shah Jahanbad, and the Jumna River, Shah Jahan built a large red sandstone fort called the Red Fort. The Red Fort is still used by the Indian government today for important events. Another thing about the Red Fort is that the last Mughal emperor was taken captive there by the British and later exiled to Burma. Another significant building project by Shah Jahan was the Shalimar Gardens in Lahore. The Shalimar Gardens included seven terraces with water flowing through each of them. Each terrace had pavilions for royalty to relax and enjoy, and it also included a walled garden for privacy as well as a marble throne. The Shalimar Garden still exists today and is used for special occasions and concerts. Shah Jahan also ordered the construction of the Jama'a Masjid in Delhi. It is still in use today and is one of the largest mosques in India. The Peacock Throne Another interesting building project from Shah Jahan was this magnificent throne that he had built that became known as the Peacock Throne. The Peacock Throne was modeled after what Shah Jahan thought Prophet Suleiman salam's throne might have looked like. The throne was called the Peacock Throne because of the bejeweled peacock statues on the throne sides. This throne was ornate and extravagantly designed. It was covered in gold and jewels. It was set on a marble pedestal and had silver steps leading up to it. It also had golden feet encrusted with jewels. And the peacock statues, which the throne was named after, had open tails that were covered in gold and decorated with diamonds and other precious stones. It took seven years to complete this throne and obviously used large amounts of gold and precious stones in its construction. This peacock throne was extravagant even by Mughal standards, and that's saying a lot. Ironically, the peacock throne was eventually carried away by Nadir Shah of Persia when he invaded Delhi, and inshallah, we will discuss that in a future episode. Dealing with his subjects Shah Jahan used to meet his subjects at Diwani Nam, located in the Red Fort. Diwani Nam means Hall of Public Audience, and this is where the emperor would listen to appeals and pass judgments. From there, he would go to Dawani Khas, which means the Hall of Audience for special people. There, he would take his time to meet with courtiers, nobles, ambassadors, and other important visitors. From there, Shah Jahan would relocate to Shah Burj, the royal tower, where he would meet with his closest advisors to discuss matters of state. Finally, he would retire to his harem, where he would take lunch before holding court for the women of the harem. The EIC and VOC In 1602, the various Dutch trading companies merged into one large company. I'm going to try to get this pronunciation correct. It was called Vedinigda Ostendische Company, or the Dutch East India Company, or simply VOC for short. The VOC had much more capital than the individual companies and could offer investors a much higher rate of return. Meanwhile, the EIC, the British East India Company, was having trouble raising more funds. 
They even had to issue arrest warrants to pressure investors who had pledged to pay but had not yet paid. The English would continue to have difficulties raising funds for many more years. Part of the problem for the English was that there was much more interest in the new American colony of Virginia than there was in the East Indies. The EIC suffered a setback when the Dutch attacked their factory, which was really a trading station, in the Moluccas. The Moluccas are Indonesian islands off the coast of Papua New Guinea. After defeating the English in the Moluccas, the Dutch also tortured and killed several Englishmen working at the factory. The Dutch continued to harass and undermine the EIC's ventures in Indonesia until finally the East India Company decided to leave the Dutch with Indonesia and seek their fortunes elsewhere. This is what led Captain William Hawkins to seek an audience with Jahangir in 1608, which we discussed in episode 3 of this series. This meeting between William Hawkins and Emperor Jahangir led to a three-year license from the Mughals which allowed the EIC to operate from Surat. This was the beginning of the EIC's long relationship with the Mughals and with India. Unlike the Portuguese, the English East India Company was not violent in its early endeavors in India. The English knew it was pointless to start an armed conflict with the Mughals. Even though the Mughals didn't have a good navy, they had an enormous land army that could easily crush any English military. During these early years, the EIC was very careful to respect Mughal laws and avoided angering their hosts. In addition to the Mughals, the EIC also opened trade talks with two other Indian states. These were the Deccan Sultanate of Golconda, which they used for trading fabrics, as well as Patna, which they used for trading saltpeter, which was itself used to make gunpowder. Over the years, the EIC eventually started to grow more profitable. In 1602, the EIC only raised 68,000 pounds sterling in investments. By 1613, they had raised 418,000 pounds in investments. And in 1617, this number had increased to 1.6 million pounds sterling in investments. By 1634, the East India Company had enough money to build an armored fort in southern India. The building of this fort was led by Francis Day, chief of the EIC Armagon factory in southern India. This armored fort was built near a fishing village called Madras Patnam, which used to be part of the Hindu Vijayanagar Empire, which had once ruled over much of southern India. However, by this time, the Vijayanagara Empire was in decay and in rapid decline. The EIC fort, called St. George, did very well. By the 1670s, that small fishing village was a bustling colonial town of 40,000 people. It soon became known as Madras. Madras would go on to become one of the EIC's largest and most profitable Indian settlements. Listen to this quote regarding the origins of Madras. Again, it was neither commercial nor military considerations which dictated the choice of site. Day, it was said, had a liaison with a Tamil lady whose village lay inland from Madras Patnam. 
According to one contemporary source, Day was so enamored of her and so anxious that their interviews might be more frequent and uninterrupted that his selection of the site of Fort St. George lying immediately adjacent to her home village was a foregone conclusion. This time the settlement, soon known simply as Madras, flourished. The Naik, or governor, who leased the land, said he was anxious for the area to flourish and grow rich, and had given Day the right to build a fort and castle, to trade customs free, and to perpetually enjoy the privileges of mintage. These were major concessions that the more powerful Mughals to the north would take nearly another century to yield. William Dalrymple, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. War with the Portuguese The Portuguese had already established trading bases in Surat and Gujarat. When he was emperor, Akbar the Great was genuinely interested in establishing and maintaining ties with the Portuguese. He had even invited some of their priests to the palace when he invaded Gujarat in 1572. All of this was discussed in the previous season in episode 15. The Portuguese also had another settlement in Hughley, which was established in 1537. Hughley is near modern-day Calcutta in West Bengal, India, and sits on the Bhagirati River, which flows south into the Bay of Bengal. Now, even though they were supposed to be there for trade, the Portuguese had become very aggressive. Their factories in Hughley were heavily fortified. They attacked and taxed other ships passing through the area. They had even captured local people and forced them into slavery and have forcibly converted some of the locals to Christianity. Now it should be noted, for all their faults, the Mughal government, the Mughal empire, never had a policy of forcibly converting their subjects to Islam. But what really did the Portuguese in was that they did not pay homage to Shah Jahan when he became emperor. Now, back before he became emperor, when he was the rebel Prince Kodum and he was running throughout India, the Portuguese did not offer him any help. We discussed this in the previous episode. But now that Shah Jahan was the emperor and the Portuguese still did not send him any gifts, well, this was too much for Shah Jahan. With all of their other transgressions, this was an insult that Shah Jahan just could not let slide. In 1632, Emperor Shah Jahan ordered Qasim Khan, the governor of Bengal, to expel the Portuguese. Qasim Khan used a boom to block the Portuguese from escaping down the river, and then he besieged their fortress for three months. He set mines underneath the fort, and when one of them went off, it killed several Portuguese. The fort fell to the Mughal forces, and thousands of Portuguese were killed in the fighting, somewhere between 4,000 and 10,000. All of the Indian slaves who were being held captive within the fort were set free, and the Portuguese survivors were forced to march back to Agra, which was an 11-month journey. The Portuguese were brought before Shah Jahan, who gave them the opportunity to accept Islam. Most of them refused, and they were promptly enslaved and given to the various Mughal nobles. However, some of the worst Portuguese offenders were thrown into prison and tortured to death. As for the Portuguese settlements in the West, in Goa and Diu, they couldn't do anything. They were completely powerless to help their comrades in the East. 
From that point forward, the Portuguese were never a real threat to the Mughals. In 1640, the East India Company was allowed to establish a new factory for the English in Hughley. All things considered, these first four years of Shah Jahan's reign from 1628 to 1632 were fairly easy. But his ambition would lead him to extend himself further than he probably should have. In the next episode, we'll discuss Shah Jahan's attempts to expand into Central Asia and the Deccan and the breakdown of his relationship with his son and future emperor, Aurangzeb. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you're an Apple or Spotify user, open the app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you're listening on Podbean, become a patron in the Podbean app and you'll get access to all of our premium content. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History. Our premium content includes a series on the life of Salahuddin, an ongoing series about the Umayyad dynasty, and one I think you'll really enjoy, our latest series on the Soviet-Afghan war. Altogether, that's well over 50 premium episodes. Before we go, I want to thank Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research on the Mughal Empire and his continued support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Stay tuned for a short clip from our series on the Soviet-Afghan War. And until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. We fought the DRA and Soviets for control of the Kunar Valley. The area borders Pakistan and is very mountainous and forested. Many of the mountains are over 5,000 meters high and are permanently snow-capped. We operated in Shiwa district along the Kunar River. There, the mountains are not as high and the key terrain feature is the Kunar River and the highway which parallels it. In September 1982, we ambushed a supply column which was traveling from Jalalabad to Kunar. The column was about 8 kilometers in length. I had 22 Mujahideen armed with two RPG-7s, four AK-47 Kalashnikovs, and 16 bolt-action Enfield rifles. I set up the ambush on the high ground north of the Kunar River at Kande. I divided my force into a support group and an ambush and attack group. The support group was on the high ground while the ambush and attack group was below them next to the road. When the column came, we let it pass. I wanted to attack near the end of the column. As the head of the column reached Zirai Baba, which is 6 kilometers northeast of Kande, a contact signaled us. We then opened fire on the column with our RPGs. An armored vehicle turned off and left the road to fire at us. It hit an anti-tank mine that we had planted there. We also hit it with RPG-7 fire. We also hit a ZIL truck. 
Our action split the convoy. Half of the convoy went on to Kanar and the rest returned to Jalalabad. We didn't have enough firepower to continue the fight, so we withdrew. Besides taking out the armored vehicle and truck, we killed six enemy. I had one Mujahideen wounded. Dr. Mohammed Sadiq, Hizbi Islami Hekmatiyar. At 0530 hours, the brigade commander gave the signal and the force began their sweep on a wide front. The third motorized rifle battalion was on the left. The first motorized rifle battalion was in the center and the air assault battalion was on the right flank. Almost certainly, an irregular group of five to seven men began long-range small arms fire on our forces and then withdrew to the northeast. Our subunits went in pursuit of them. At 1600 hours, the second air assault company, commanded by senior lieutenant Duibi, made contact with approximately 40 Mujahideen. The enemy was deployed in a well-organized defense occupying about a kilometer of frontage. The battalion commander ordered the right flank 1st Air Assault Company to envelop from the right the enemy force which is defending in front of the 2nd Company, block the enemy route of withdrawal to the northeast, prepare to destroy the enemy in concert with the 2nd Company. I was a senior lieutenant at the time and commanded the 1st Air Assault Company. It took me a half hour to form up my platoons and begin the maneuver. During this time, the 2nd Company sustained casualties, but the enemy began to withdraw. By 1700 hours, I had maneuvered my platoons into blocking positions covering a Mujahideen breakout to the northeast. I personally positioned each platoon behind adobe walls working consecutively from the northeast to the north. When I finished positioning my forces, my command post element and I were at the extreme right flank of my position. I had seven soldiers, including myself, in the command group. Before I could reposition, approximately 70 enemy soldiers approached my command post. My six soldiers and I took the enemy under fire. At that point, I lost radio communications with both battalion headquarters and my subordinate platoons. However, I still had radio contact with brigade headquarters. The brigade commander demanded the exact coordinates of my position in order to call in artillery fire. However, I was unable to determine my precise location. I could only give an approximate location, which I felt would be accurate to within 50 meters. The artillery refused to shoot the mission without more precise data. The enemy force attacked three times. During the third assault, the command post was running out of ammunition. Each member of the command group, at my direction, simultaneously threw a grenade and broke contact with the enemy and withdrew to the first platoon position. Even when we had joined forces with the first platoon, we did not pursue the enemy because of his clear numerical superiority. Enemy losses were 20 killed. My company had no casualties. Lieutenant Colonel S. V. Zelensky, 1st Air Assault Company.